0: Harsha Matot and Maseh, of course our double portion. We are at the very end of Bamidbar or the book of Numbers and there's a lot of material to kind of get through this past week as I sort of go through the selection process of what I would like to share with you guys. But It's at this time that um, many of us, David and Jeanette, myself, many others, would begin to think about the High Holy Days that are coming up. Because we're only about eight weeks out from Rosh Hashanah. And the High Holy Day season is our busiest season of the year. At the moment, I think we're floating around nine services inside of about three weeks. And so that makes for a very exhausting um, but very fulfilling period of time. And so sometimes when we start to approach the High Holy Days, I look for parallels. um, So we could learn a little bit more about the High Holy Days ahead of time. And really, there is... When we talk about Yom Kippur and the Kol Nidre service, there's a foundation for the Kol Nidre service, which is found in this week's Torah portion. So let's begin... And the first Parsha, Matot, um, I'm going to read just a little bit. If you'd like to turn there, it's Numbers chapter 30. I don't have any page numbers, but I trust that most of you will be able to find Numbers chapter 30 in a timely manner. Yes, that's right. This is right. Numbers chapter 30. Depending on your version of scripture, it'll be verse 1 or verse 2 we'll be starting in. 42nd Parsha, begins like this. Then Moshe spoke to the heads of the tribes of the people of Israel, and he said, here's what Adonai has ordered. When a man takes a vow to Adonai or formally obligates himself by swearing an oath, he is not to break his word, but is to do everything he said he would do. When a woman makes a vow to Adonai, um, formally obligating herself while she is a minor living in her father's house, then if her father has her Heard what she uh, vowed or obligated herself to do and holds his peace, then all her vows remain binding. Every obligation she has bound herself to will stand. But if on the day her father hears it, he expresses his disapproval, then none of her vows or obligations she has bound herself to will stand, and Adonai will forgive her because her father expressed his disapproval. Torah goes on to say it's the same thing with his wife. If his wife makes a vow and he hears about it, he can annul that. Uh, If it's within the first day or uh, if he holds his peace, then it's binding. So I'm going to talk a little bit about this morning about vows and oaths. So I know it's not the most exciting subject in the world, but there's a great parallel here to understand when it comes to Kol Nidre. While we think about vows and oaths, we can't help but think about the instruction, of course, that we get from Yeshua. Matthew chapter 5, verse 36, he says, And don't swear by your head because you can't make a single hair white or black. Just let your yes be a simple yes and your no be a simple no. Anything more than this has its origin in evil. So, of course, many of us would probably be reluctant to make a vow or an oath, casually or rashly, just based upon the instruction we get from our Master Yeshua, of course. We should just let our yes be yes. There's similar, um, similar instruction in the Tanakh from um, King Shlomo, of course. It comes from the book of Ecclesiastes. I don't have a page number, but I know it's right before Daniel and right after Ruth, and there's somewhere. Oh, yes. Kohelet or Ecclesiastes chapter 5. It's found on page 1079 in the complete Jewish Bible, 1079. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. This is another. Instruction on vows sounds very much like what our Master Yeshua says. Chapter 5 begins like this. Don't speak impulsively, and don't be in a hurry to give voice to your words before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth, so let your words be few. For nightmares come from worrying too much, and a fool, when he speaks, chatters too much. If you make a vow to God, don't delay in discharging it. For God takes no pleasure in fools, so discharge your vow. Better not to make a vow than to make a vow and not discharge it. Sounds a lot like uh, what our Master Yeshua tells us to do. Vows and oaths are very serious business. The problem is today's world, we're sort of conditioned to think otherwise. One's word means very little In today's culture, it seems, if you're in any kind of business at all, you know you better get it in writing, or you better have a receipt, or you better have an email from somebody about something because somebody's word really doesn't mean anything these days anymore. And that's very unfortunate because there was a time not long ago that it did. Even something as simple as marriage vows, taken very lightly these days, you can get a no-fault divorce, it's pretty easy. The vows just don't seem to hold weight. As much weight as they used to anymore. It's just another example of the modern world that we live in. But getting back to oaths, sometimes we do just get drawn into having to make an oath and it's many times in life is fairly unavoidable. My wife will ask me if I'm going to start a project this weekend. I will say yes. She's heard that before. So she'll say, Promise me you're going to start this project this week. ah, My yes isn't good enough. I have to promise I'm going to do that. I've gotten myself into uh, an oath now. Well, it's under duress, but it's an oath nonetheless. So we make all kinds of oaths for good reasons, sometimes for not good reasons, but it's still serious business. In any event, we learn from this morning's Torah portion, that a wife or a daughter, if she makes a vow and it is maybe made hastily, I'll never shop there again, something like that, the father can come and say, you know what, I think you're just a little irritated, let's back off that oath. And he can nullify the oath of a wife or a daughter, but what about dad? What happens if dad's all irritated and says, makes an oath just rashly irresponsible? Where does he go for relief? Kol Nidre. We're getting there. (laughs) Typically, in the synagogue, back in their day, or even in our day, you go to the Beit Din. Beit Din means the house of judgment. That's who nullifies the vows. And that is drawn. They draw their authority from that. So what authority does man have to nullify a vow? Well, I would direct you back to this week's Torah portion. If you read the first verse kind of carefully, or maybe it's the second verse, when a man makes a vow, right, he is not to break it. That implies that he can't break it, but somebody else can. And so the bait dean, if it's proper, you know, they're not reckless, but if it's proper, they have the authority to help him release himself from the vow. And so that authority that they have is really drawn from two different witnesses in Torah. You might ask, what, where does the authority come from Scripture that men can do stuff like this? Well, you don't have to turn there, but if you're taking notes, write these two witnesses down. The first one is Exodus 18.21. That's Parsha Yitro, of course, right before the Mount Sinai experience and the giving of the Ten Commandments. Moshe's father-in-law comes down and sees him trying to spend all his days, day and night, trying to deal with the people, and he has them set up a system of courts, people in charge over hundreds and tens and thousands, and, and that way there's, um, he can get a little bit of rest, and he just takes the difficult cases. There's a second witness found in Devarim chapter 16, verse 18, Deuteronomy 16 again. The Lord says, you are to appoint judges and officers for all your gates and the cities. I don't your God is giving you tribe by tribe, and they are to judge the people with righteous judgment. So having men in charge of judging, deciding how to live out Torah commandments, this is really a biblical system. It's embedded right in Torah. This is the foundation of the Beit Din. And so um, in biblical times, of course, they had the Sanhedrin, that we all read about in Scripture there in Jerusalem. But at the same time, every community had systems of lower courts. Every community, no matter how far away, if there was a synagogue, they had a Beit Deem comprised of at least three men in even the smallest communities. And so they would handle all sorts of disputes. They'd settle divorce matters, property disputes, business law, all kinds of different legislative things that come up in a community. And they also had the authority to annul vows and oaths. So that's where Dad goes to get relief from a vow or an oath. And that's because the Beit Din had the authority to, well, what we're familiar with the term is as bind and loose, binding and loosening, forbidding and allowing. Now, many people look at the binding and loosening concept can be a bit controversial to some. Yeah, I get it. Many people look at the way various religious movements have abused this idea and we should understand that they're just a group of humans, too, trying to, trying to do what's well, and everybody is prone to error at one point or another. But the flip side of the coin would be for every man to do what's right in his own eyes, and this is clearly against the teaching of Scripture as well. Yeshua weighs in on this subject. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Maybe we should go there. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. 1244 is the page number in the complete Jewish Bible or Matthew chapter 16 verse 18 here he's talking to Kepha right or Peter he says I also tell you this Um, you are Kepha which means rock and on this rock I will build my community and the gates of Sheol will not overcome it I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you permit on earth will be, or whatever you prohibit on earth will be prohibited in heaven. And whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. Um, Then he warned the Talmudim not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. So the binding and loosening, the permitting and not permitting, is something that shows up thousands of times in uh, the rabbinical literature. That's just their way of making rules, and um, you have to make judgments sometimes. When the Jewish people came to America, they had to decide was a turkey kosher or not, right? They have to make a are they allowed to do this or not? This is just part of how you live through life and how you let Torah, uh, how you live Torah out. Here, Yeshua is starting his own community and he is establishing Peter as the leader, and then he's giving them the um, he's establishing more than just a leader, but he's establishing the authority system, much the same as all the other synagogues had. If you around on the ground, if you could uh, go back in time and live with these Talmudim, you'd find your little believers' community, their little synagogue, much like all the rest, and you'd find yourself going to the temple along with the other disciples, performing sacrifices, uh, worshiping there just like everyone else had been doing, and they continued to do that for decades because that was the system, that was the, uh, the little sect of Judaism that they were involved with was one where Yeshua was their founder and he was their rabbi, and they are to carry on his teachings and have a calling to make disciples in Yeshua's name. So being that he established his community and put Peter in charge, Kepha, the leadership team would have the authority, just like all the other Bait Deans, they would have the authority to do many similar things, make judgments, and also to absolve vows and oaths under proper circumstances. Some of this, this idea that they can absolve vows and oaths sheds a little light on a difficult passage It was Lancaster that pointed this out as I was reading through some of the many commentaries. We all know the uh, passage, John 20, 23, Uh, Yeshua tells the Talmudim, if you forgive someone's sins, their sins are forgiven. But if you hold them, they are held. Now, that's kind of problematic because only God forgives sins, right? And here we have the Talmudim somehow have the power to forgive sins or not forgive sins. That's when you read the different commentaries, everyone struggles to explain that. One commentary I read said, well, that's, if you preach the gospel and they accept Yeshua as Messiah, then you can assure them that their sins are forgiven. And that sounds like an okay explanation, but it doesn't seem to really do it for me. However, if we look at that in view of uh, Kepha, Peter, and his leadership team, if they could Absolve oaths and vows from someone, then we can see how they could let somebody out of a a, a oath or a vow that kind of binds them um, into a position of sin. Say, for example, a man vows to his wife that he's going to start a business, and after many failed attempts, he can't provide for his family, so he takes up a a career in another path so he can provide for his family. Well, he's still bound to that oath, so he would come before the bait dean and say, "Listen, I." made an oath to my wife. I was going to start this business. The market's saturated. I can't do it. I've had to do something else. Can you release me from this oath I'm in? Because the the guilt of it is, is just wrecking him. And so Peter and his leadership team would be able to absolve him of that oath. And in a sense because an oath not, or a vow, not if you don't follow through with it, it's a sin. So in that sense, they would be able to Forgive sins and that they freed them from the oath. Oh, that just kind of helped me with that. Anyways, this is where that tie to Yom Kippur comes in. Yom Kippur, the cold Nidray service. There was a time when many years ago I wondered if the cold Nidray service was something that's efficacious for believers in Yeshua, right? Is cold Nidray something that's useful? for believers in Yeshua. Kol Nidre simply means all vows. That's what Kol Nidre means, and it's a a service. It started out in about the Middle Ages. In the Middle Ages, the the Jewish people were dispersed from Europe uh, down through the Middle East and some of northern Africa. So depending on where they were and who they ran into, at times they were forced to convert to Christianity or forced to convert to Islam. And so they made all kinds of vows that they didn't have to make, or they didn't want to make, but they had to make them, excuse me, they had to make these because you're given a choice of your family being tortured to death or convert. So that's not much of a choice. Many people chose to live. And so they came up with this, uh, they got a little creative, and they came up with a... um, uh, a Kol Nidre service that releases people from vows. Sort of like a formula, a bunch of liturgy you can read through. All the bait Deems approved it, and approved it, and they kind of got this thing going, and it just stuck from all the years. It stuck because Kol Nidre is a very fulfilling um, service, and. The notion of having vows and oaths nullified is a Torah commandment, so it's biblical-based. And it's a process that the Talmudim of Yeshua would have continued to practice as good Jewish men and women. So there is that practical application of our lives today, of course. Now, we should be careful always of what we say and the oaths that we take. We should take all those things very seriously. We should take all our speech very seriously Our mouths are probably the biggest source of sin, if you could tally up all the sins that you do, uh, just stuff you do with speech, the amount of sin you don't even think about. Not just evil speech, lashan but careless speech, profane speech, our ability to communicate is something that has the ability to create and destroy, right? Proverbs 11.11 says, by the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted, by the mouth of the wicked, it is torn down. We should be, and much is true not just of cities, but of people as well. So we should be careful about what we say, of course, and let our yes be yes and no be no, but we'll all still fail at this. And surely we can go to the Lord in prayer and ask forgiveness and beseech him for mercy, uh, for the foolish things that we say or for vows that we, that we uh, didn't mean to make. But still, cold nidre are all vows is a meaningful and powerful way for a community to stand together before Adonai and publicly acknowledge uh, every manner of sin that one could possibly think of. It's a very exhaustive list. Kol Nidre is a great exercise for the followers of Yeshua. We exercise our faith in many ways, right? We have prayer, we we exercise our faith through uh, music and worship and um, through communal liturgy, through studying Torah, through Shabbat and other Moedim, right? We ex- exercise our faith uh, on Kol Nidre, on the Kol Nidre night, the all-vows ceremony uh, the night before Yom Kippur. This has been very, uh, last couple of weeks has been very good for me, just, just getting deeper, uh, it's like the Spirit is working through the scriptures, the pages are just hitting in the right spots and um, just better understandings of the high holy days and how our uh, devotion and our allegiance to Yeshua is, uh, just makes them all the more pertinent and all the more meaningful and um, the vows tie to Yom Kippur was something that this was the first week I'd really made that connection and the connection that these are things that uh, the Talmudim, Yeshua and his Talmudim not only participated in while he was alive; they didn't have cholniteri back then, but um, all the other traditional uh, Moedim and traditions that they did. And the same thing even after he resurrected. May it be all uh, the more so important for us today. May we be vigilant in protecting ourselves from careless or reckless speech, and from making vows or oaths in a careless manner. May we be gracious and merciful to those who make vows to us and fall short, right? We need to forgive 70 times 7. And may the grace and love of Yeshua be something that lives within us, and that grace and love be something that we share with each other and everyone around us. Shabbat Shalom.